If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For today's podcast, I spoke with the philosopher A.C. Grayling. We met at London's New College of Humanities, where Professor Grayling is master, to discuss his new book, The History of Philosophy, which covers the story of intellectual inquiry from the pre-Socratic thinkers to the present day. So what are some of the biggest conundrums that philosophers have grappled with down the ages? Well, you know, you can reduce philosophy to two great questions. One of them is, what exists? What is reality? What is the world? And the other one is, What matters in the world? What's of value in the world? Now, these two questions are obviously too big to be answered just by themselves. So you have to break them down. And it's in the breaking down of these questions that you get the more particular questions. The one about reality, well, how would you know what reality is? Well, what is knowledge and how do you get it? What about truth? What is truth? What is the best way to reason and to inquire and so on? And the other question, the question about what matters, is the question about value. What's of real value in the world? What's right? What's wrong? What's the good? What is the best kind of life for people? So these are the two great questions of philosophy, and they have driven the whole history of thought since our very earliest ancestors. So how have the interests of philosophers evolved over the years? Well, first I should say that uh, um, a great uh, philosophical answer to the question, has philosophy changed over time, is Yes and no, (laughs) because, of course, the central problems of philosophy have remained perennial. So right at the very beginning of the history of the Western tradition in philosophy, before Plato, um, people were asking questions about reality and about value, just as they are in philosophy today. What's changed is that as the debate has gone on, so it has accumulated more insights, more uh, perspectives, more theories. And so... um, It has also happened to generate these ways of thinking about the problems that have allowed their own special disciplines to break away and become independent. So, for example, in the 16th and 17th centuries, this question about the nature of reality gave rise to natural science. In the 18th century, it gave rise to psychology. In the 19th century, to sociology and empirical linguistics. In the 20th century, philosophy has contributed enormously to the development of cognitive science and artificial intelligence. So you can see philosophy is very consequential. It gives birth to almost all of the great special inquiries, but still the fundamental questions remain. So it both changes and it stays the same. That leads into something that I found very interesting um, in your book about the definition of philosophy. And perhaps we should talk about that before we go any further. You suggest that philosophy is, you call it a retrospective construct. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, what I mean is this. If you go to a university philosophy department today and you have a look at the different things that you study in that department, you will see they are uh, metaphysics, which is about reality, 
epistemology, which is about knowledge, ethics, which is about right and wrong, good and bad, politics, which is about how best to organize society, logic, which is about how best to reason, and so on. And so these are the concerns that we have now. So we look back through the great rich history of ideas and we pick out those strands in the history of ideas which lead up to these present concerns. It's in that respect that we're looking back through the past using the spectacles of the present to pick out those things that have led to where we are now. This is because, of course, originally the history of ideas just was the history of philosophy. They're one and the same thing. After all, philosophy just meant rational general inquiry. But as it gave birth to these different disciplines like history, like the sciences, like psychology and so on, so it left behind the the more fundamental and central questions about what we really mean when we talk about things like truth and knowledge and the right and the good. So the the whole history of ideas is the history of philosophy, but the the central and and really deep parts of philosophy remain, even though other aspects of it have been able to branch off. You spoke there about the connection to different fields, and in the book you delineate quite strongly between philosophy and theology. But I wonder whether you could speak a bit about the connection between religion and philosophy, and how religion has shaped philosophy, either by um, its omnipresence in, say, the medieval age or the move away from it in the Enlightenment? Well, if if you look at the history of ideas overall, um, it begins, of course, with uh, uh, people giving what we now regard as mythological accounts to explain how things happen in the world. So, you know, look at Greek mythology. Greek mythology is full of stories about nymphs and dryads in in the, the, the trees and the streams and so forth, because these were imputations of agency to how the world works. And these mythologies developed a bit by bit into religions. So people began really seriously to believe and to think that they could influence these agencies in some way by prayer or sacrifice and the like. But alongside also rose more rational and more empirically based ways of thinking about the world too. So if you'd had the, the, a, a view of the, of the great uh, um, tapestry of ideas. You would see some of them are mythological, some religious, some philosophical, all woven together. But as time has gone on, and as we have become cleverer and uh, have learned more about our universe, so with the rise of science, both the natural and the social sciences, so the mythologies have dropped away. Fewer people now believe in astrology. Uh, secularism has grown in society. So in a way, you can see religion and the rise of religion as being part of the story of humankind's efforts to make sense of things. But um, in in the more educated, the more rational uh, kinds of reflection, it plays less of a role. What role has philosophy played in societies over the centuries? History moves on wheels of ideas, and ideas are the remit of philosophy. So you might say, actually, that the great driver of historical change, of progress, even of regress, has been the debates that we have about how we should organize society, and what really matters, what's right or good, uh, who should be in power, um, uh, how we understand the world. These are all philosophical questions. And so philosophy has been an amazingly central and important influence in the development of pretty well everything that we can think of in history. So it's, it's a, a very useful kind of analogy to say 
philosophy, philosophical reflection, thought, debate, inquiry, is the engine that drives the whole process forward. Could you give a few or a couple of concrete examples where philosophical thought or new emergent ideas have shaped major historical events? Well, indeed, um, one could cite, uh, for example, Karl Marx sitting in the British Library, in the British Museum, the old days in the round reading room, uh, thinking about things, and within half a century, utterly changing the face of uh, of global history, certainly changing the face of things in Russia and China and other parts of the world. So there, that's just one example. One could say very, very many. One could go back further. John Locke, the English philosopher, who at the end of the 17th century uh, famously wrote his two treatises of government, the second of which lays out the justification for what we call the glorious revolution of 1688. That document is quoted in extenso and verbatim in the documents of the American and French revolutions. It had a powerful impact on the way that the founders of the United States, for example, thought about how they should set up their new society. So did the thought of Marron Montesquieu, who was another great influence as well on the American Revolution. So here are philosophical ideas really changing the course of history. To flip that last question on its head somewhat, how have we seen um, big historical changes or historical context shape the ideas of the thinkers of an age? Well, think of the the horrors, the appalling atrocities, the the deaths, the, the suffering of so many millions of people in the Second World War. And think of people who, in attempting to respond to that, people like Hannah Arendt and others, trying to make sense of how it is that we human beings, we are social animals. We need our relationships with one another. We need to love and be loved, to have friends, to be part of communities. How is it that some of us could have turned on others of us and perpetrated these awful atrocities? That effort to make, to make sense of the bad as well as the good, to try to find ways to avoid the bad, to learn from those mistakes. There's another example of how in the immediate aftermath of a catastrophe like the Second World War, uh, it, it generated a whole new burst of reflection. And does that apply with life, individual life experience as well? Can you see the impact of somebody's biography on their thinking? Oh, certainly. There's, there's no question about that. I mean, well, one of the really interesting things that, that we learn from um, classical antiquity is that uh, before, in the fourth century of the Common Era, Christianity became the dominant outlook of the European mind. And um, for over 500 years, the uh, outlook of educated people was Stoicism. And uh, you can read people like Marcus Aurelius or Epictetus or uh, Seneca, um, very, very deep and beautiful evocations of a way of approaching life and thinking about the problems of life, of answering the question, how should I live and what sort of person should I be? Questions, by the way, that were originally posed in that form by Socrates, and that's the Socratic challenge, as it's sometimes called. And the Stoics said... With respect to those things that we have no influence over, earthquakes and ageing and disease, we must confront them with courage. But with respect to those things that we have some, some chance of mastering them ourselves, our appetites, our fears, our desires, we should try to get some measure of self-control. Because if we can live with courage and with self-control, then we can live nobly. 
Now, this is a, a marvelous example of a fundamentally humanistic, let's say just a, a, a non-religious, ordinary kind of outlook worked out by people of mature mind and, and of experience about how we can live. And we see Marcus Aurelius, an emperor, Epictetus, who was a slave, Seneca, who was a sort of civil servant, I suppose you might say, so from different areas of society, all reflecting and agreeing, really, that there are ways of thinking philosophically about life that make life good. Can we ever divorce historical context from a philosophical text? I don't think we can. I think in order to understand uh, any historical period, and certainly any epoch in history when great changes occur, we've really got to look uh, and uh, ask ourselves the question, what were people thinking and why? What was the dominant ideology of the time? Why did some people accept certain ideas and reject others? And in, in order to make sense of that too, we, we need to look at the period that runs up to it, the period of debate and of, of discussion. When you do that, you see some really interesting contrasts. Think, for example, of the difference between the high medieval period and the Renaissance. Look at the art of the high medieval period, a great deal of which, almost all of which, was devotional. Resurrections, depositions from the cross, uh, annunciations, crucifixions, flagellations. But then look at the art of the Renaissance. Picnics in the countryside, uh, landscapes, portraits, nudes, a very different artistic ethos. What has changed? Well, what has changed, of course, is the focus of attention. In the high medieval period, life is uh, dangerous. We're in the veil of tears. We, we have to hang on in there in the hope of managing to escape the dangers of sin into uh, the bliss of an afterlife. But in the Renaissance, we have people concentrating on the value of life in the here and now, in the world, the recognition that experience and, and uh, um, natural beauty, uh, thought, that these things can give us great satisfactions here and now. Now, these two changes are fundamentally changes in the ways of thinking, and ways of thinking are philosophies. Something I found very intriguing in the book was the idea about somebody's ideas living on beyond their lifespan. And an example that you give is Nietzsche and how his ideas were reinterpreted by his sister um, after his death. How have some philosophers' ideas been reimagined, repackaged, or possibly um, misinterpreted? Well, Nietzsche is, of course, a prime example here because his sister, who was a, a very uh, conservative uh, person, small c, rather reactionary person, actually, um, used bits of his writings to make him appear to be a sort of forerunner of Nazism. Actually, he was very hostile to anti-Semitism and he was hostile to nationalism, so he was anything but a Nazi. But um, as uh, the Cardinal Richelieu once said, give me six lines that anybody has written and I can use them to have that man hanged. And so exactly the same thing happened with, with Nietzsche. Uh, his views were distorted by his sister who presented him in a quite different light from one that he himself would have agreed with. And this has happened. The thing is, you see, that, that the whole history of philosophy is the history of a conversation. And we have a, a, a part to play in that conversation. We who love and study philosophy now are in conversation with our forebears. That conversation involves interpretation and reinterpretation, attempts to understand, attempts to look at people in their historical context and see whether that makes a difference to what they really meant. 
And so um, you get, as part of the conversation, uh, uh, different ways of looking at the ideas that people have offered us. But it is all one great conversation, which is uh, the remarkable thing about it. Is that especially a problem with ancient texts, which often come down as fragments or reports, or often you don't even have the uh, words from the pen of the philosopher themselves? Oh, this is a tremendous problem, especially with um, ancient philosophy, pre-Socratic philosophy, that's before the time of Plato and Aristotle. So much of uh, what they wrote and said comes to us in bits and pieces and and in reports. Um, People do forget that there was a a moment when, and it lasted for a couple of centuries really, when a huge amount of the culture of classical antiquity was destroyed. So we know that we have only just a few plays of Aeschylus, although we know the names of many, many more, dozens and dozens more. And this is true of of huge amounts of art, of literature and of philosophy, which have been lost. And so the attempt to recover uh, what people were thinking and saying and where the the sort of fountainhead, if you like, of our own um, culture comes from has been a work of major scholarship. It's been a a triumph in many respects too, but still it's fragmentary. So when you go back and you look at philosophers in the past and you um, see the kinds of things that they're they're trying to reach for, trying to explain, you can can reconstruct with a great deal of accuracy actually, in part, uh, what it is that they were striving for. Let me give you an example. The person we regard as the first philosopher, although obviously he wasn't, but he's the first we know of, a man called Thales, who lived in the early 6th century uh, before the Common Era, uh, he said, um, everything has a soul. And he referred to a magnet, which could draw bits of iron to itself. So he thought the magnet must have a little soul in it because it can act on other things. Now, he didn't li- literally mean that it has a little soul with wings on it, like people now, now think of souls. What he meant was a, a power, a, a, an, a, an ability to act upon uh, other things. But he didn't have the vocabulary or the concept, conceptual scheme available because he was the very, very first person trying to articulate this idea. So you have to kind of sympathetically look into what it was he was trying to express and not just how he was expressing it to make sense of the view. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And so it might be in 50 or 100, 150, 500 years' time that some of the things that philosophers then will be asking themselves questions about will be things that we can't imagine now because we aren't yet ready to imagine them. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You're surveying a vast swathe of different people here in the book. What do you think makes a truly great philosopher? Depth of insight, originality, 
having an effect on the way that subsequent generations of people think about things. And I would say of the the really, really great philosophers, um, three stand out. Two in ancient times, Plato and Aristotle, uh, and one in modern times, uh, Immanuel Kant. And now these these figures have really, uh, in, in a way, gone so much deeper into the problems that uh, philosophy throws up and have provided ways of thinking that have, have, have changed the nature of the conversation uh, after their time. That is what I think singles them out as, as really great. To dig a little deeper on those three figures, why was Plato such a towering figure? Well, if you look at Plato's work, you see almost every um, major topic in philosophy is at least touched on by Plato. He raises questions that need to be raised. He's identified um, the, the, the real problems. What about the question of how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Now, that is a real philosophical question, because if there are angels, then the question arises, are they in some way physical or not? If they are, you can't get very many of them on the head of a pin. If they aren't, then you can get an infinite number of them on the head of a pin. So now you're raising a real philosophical problem, which is about if something exists, must it have certain properties, like the property of being physical, occupying space or not? So you see, here, here are two quite different ways of, of, of thinking about things, the philosophical way of thinking and the non-philosophical. Um, and one of Plato's students was Aristotle. Why was he such an important thinker? Oh, uh, what a, a great genius Aristotle was, and a universal genius. His interests uh, and his contributions range right across what was the science of the day, uh, politics and ethics, uh, the deepest questions in metaphysics about the very nature of, of existence, of being. Um, and he was the most extraordinary mind. He almost single-handedly created the science of, of logic, not quite single-handedly, but the first major organiser of it, really. We have uh, a, a, a large number of works by Aristotle, Although most of the works that he wrote, or in fact, all of the works that he wrote actually for publication have been lost. He was described, uh, his dialogues, none of which survive, were described as literary masterpieces, even greater than Plato. Plato's dialogues are, are among the great treasures of world literature, independently of being great treasures of philosophy. So he was an extraordinary individual. And uh, again, as I said, he changed the way that people think about the world, changed the way that people uh, reason and argue, provided uh, kinds of concepts which have really shaped the ways that successive thinkers have thought in. We have to fast forward thousands of years until we get to Kant. Um, and you might think, well, surely there couldn't be that much left to discuss that makes him worthy of being the third towering figure that you pick out. Why was he so significant in your, in your opinion? Well, he, like um, Aristotle before him, uh, had this, uh, this universal mind. In fact, um, he, he only really got a, a, a proper job, a proper permanent academic job quite late in life. 
Uh, and that meant that uh, he had to make a living, sometimes not very successfully, in lecturing on pretty well anything that people would pay to hear about. So he lectured on astronomy and mathematics and military fortifications and physics and all sorts of things, as well as on philosophy. In fact, he made uh, real contributions in astronomy um, uh, and in other sciences, uh, recognized indeed by, by the scientific community. But when he was in his late 40s, he finally managed to settle down, he had a job, and he could devote himself to his great works. And these are the critique of pure reason, the critique of practical reason, the groundwork of the metaphysic of morals, uh, great, great works which have changed the way that, that people have thought about the problems that they address. And what he did in um, the, the first of those great works, The Critique of Pure Reason, was to look at the two major traditions of thought that have come out of the hundreds and hundreds of years of, of debate beforehand. You have to remember, by the way, that b because of the the, the dominance of, um, of Christianity in Europe from about the 5th century of the Common Era up until the Reformation. It was not all that easy to, to do philosophy because it might get you into trouble. You could get your toes warmed at the stake if you weren't careful, if you went too far. So a great deal of the philosophy that was done in medieval times tended to be intimately interwoven with theological considerations. So in a way... The 16th, 17th century saw the revival of uh, philosophy, the philosophical concerns of antiquity. It was only really in the 18th century that thinking about ethics was again permissible. After all, if you were a Christian, you knew what right and wrong was and how to live and behave. But the thinking about the fundamental principles of ethics, which the ancients had addressed, only came back into focus in the 18th century. So... Kant was at a, a position in the history of philosophy where the two great traditions, the empiricist tradition and the rationalist tradition, had, uh, as it were, gelled into two major alternative ways of thinking about the possibility of knowledge and of understanding the world. And he found a way of showing how elements of both are important for making sense of the nature of how we see the world. Speaking about those three figures, what strikes me is the massively wide range of their contributions. Do you think that philosophers have had to specialise in a narrower and narrower field? Or do you think somebody could come in from the side and blow the whole thing wide open again? Oh, I do think the latter, yes. Because, you know, uh, if you were to ask me the question, who is the great philosopher living today? I would say, I don't know. And th this, this is the question that could only be maybe be answered in 100 years' time when we see whose ideas, whose thoughts really change things. And that person might be uh, a, a woman not in a philosophy department. You know, So we, we, we have to wait to see. What's happened in philosophy in the last hundred years or so is a little bit similar to what happened to philosophy in the late medieval period, in the scholastic period. It has become a highly specialised um, and, and much narrower um, set of pursuits. In other words, in order to make a contribution to philosophical debate now, you have to focus down on the very central concerns, the kind that are studied in universities, and you have to uh, develop a high degree of, of technical sophistication to deal with those problems. I like to say to my students when I'm introducing them, I have to say, you've got to get used to the fact that there are lots of long words in philosophy, like marmalade and corrugated iron. And as soon as you're used to that, you, you'll be home and dry. 
we've lost um, uh, the, the greater breadth of philosophy that it had uh, in uh, antiquity and even at the beginning of the modern period. People like Descartes and David Hume and others, they didn't write for a specialist coterie. They wrote for educated people who, in general, were interested in these sorts of ideas. We've lost uh, a little bit of, of um, uh, momentum in thinking about uh, the question, how should one live? How should one think about things like death and love and so on? These are only marginally of, of interest to people's working in, in, for example, meta-ethics today. That strikes me as a pity. And I hope that by getting people interested in the, in the, the larger story of philosophy, that it will bring those things back into focus. Apart from the figures that we've already discussed, perhaps, who is a philosopher whose work really personally excites you or you find very thrilling? Well, let me first distinguish between the ideas that, that come from a philosopher and the, the sort of philosophical uh, approach or, or, or manner. Um, so sometimes these are in the same person, sometimes not. Second point is that, you know, beauty contests, you know, who wins, who's the best, what's the best, which is the highest, uh, are in fact kind of unhelpful because, uh, again, one should point out that Parnassus, the great mountain of achievement, is not a peak, it's a plateau. And there are plenty uh, of, of, there's plenty of room up there for lots of great people. So when people ask me who's your favourite philosopher, I say there are about a dozen <laughs> of them, uh, and I admire them for different reasons. But I would pick out Aristotle and um, Kant and David Hume and Bertrand Russell. I would pick these them out for... for um, either one or both of the two reasons I've mentioned. The ideas of uh, uh, Aristotle and uh, Kant, I think, are um, extraordinarily important. The approach to philosophy, the intent, the motivation that lay behind the work of David Hume and, and Bertrand Russell, I find very attractive. Um, so I, I think the, the, the kind of philosophical mind, which is the mind that belongs to a childish heart, you know, always curious, always open, uh, or always vitally interested in trying to make sense of things. Because, you know, the beautiful thing about philosophy is that it's, a, it's a, a kind of license to be interested in everything. It's also a duty to be interested in everything too. And to have that kind of curiosity and then to try to find in amongst all the, 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 the phenomena that we meet with, something that will help us to make sense of it, something which is persuasive. That is, that is a, a, the kind of philosophical achievement which makes one admire somebody like Aristotle or Kant or Hume or Russell. One of the great and distinguishing things about human beings is our possession of intelligence. You know, almost every human being is intelligent. You know, scratch anybody at a bus stop and, the, you know, on their interest, the thing that, that really moves them and grabs them. And you find that, that we are a, a very intelligent kind of primate. And um, there are very few people who, 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 uh, who aren't. And so if you, if you find your attention engaged by something uh, and you really want to understand why, you want to get at the roots of things, you want to find the, the interpretation or the, the, the framework that will that put things into meaningful relationships with themselves, then you are doing philosophy. Almost everybody is a philosopher. I can prove this easily. Anybody who goes to the pub, as the evening goes on, you get smarter and more philosophical. So we all like to discuss these great questions. <laughs> and it's important that we do. So I think it's a, um, 
you know, it's it's not surprising in a way that the quest for explanations, for understanding and for insight, which is so natural to us as human beings, should produce this wonderful thing, which is philosophy. What is it about Hume and Russell that really appeals to you? The thing that appeals to me about Hume is this marvellous kind of of, um, sensible outlook that he had. He, He was a a person of genuine um, benevolence who thought that if we are grown-ups in our views about life, uh, we, we could make life good to live. And he believed that this was something that was possible for everybody. He was uh, um, called by his acquaintances Le Bon David. He was called this by his um, his French friends when he was in the embassy in, in Paris. Um, but it was a sobriquet that stuck with him because of his general outlook. And he thought that this, this was something which could be fully justified by understanding the human mind and human nature. His great work is called A Treatise of Human Nature. And in it, he, he uh, uh, gives us an argument which says... The reason why we think about the world as we do and the reason why we have the kind of moral valuations uh, that we do is because of facts about us as human beings. By the way, this was the inspiration for Kant because Kant said, this has to be right. The structure of our minds, the way we cognize things has a huge influence on the way the world seems to us. So these are very, very uh, significant insights. But it was the kind of, it was the sort of, um, maturity and good-heartedness and, uh, um, you know, sensible uh, secular outlook that uh, Hume had in a very broad sense of secular, which makes him an attractive figure. In the case of Russell, um, Russell is a bit of a Marmite character in, in philosophical terms. His very early work in philosophy and in logic is, is much admired. And later on, because he lived an enormously long life, but he, he devoted himself to all sorts of different things. He wrote a popular column in the Hearst newspapers, for example, on things like cosmetics and friendship and what have you. And he he was a a campaigner, a campaigned against war. Uh, He wasn't a pacifist, but he believed that the First World War was an evil war. He supported the fight against Hitler, but then he saw that nuclear weapons were a terrible danger to the world, and he campaigned against those. And so what I love about Russell is his commitment He was really, really committed. He was very engaged. He took his philosophical styles of thought, his effort to be clear-minded and and, uh, clearly articulating ideas to this broad task of social, political affairs. And I admire that in him enormously. What do you think makes a particular idea, first of all, catch fire, and secondly, be able to sustain for centuries? I think ideas uh, ideas take root in us uh, if they um, really touch a point in us, in a, an intellectual and an emotional need in us that, that has to be satisfied. We've got to have a way of thinking about something or approaching something that really works for us. Ideas can can sometimes brilliant ideas can have to wait and wait like a seed in the ground for their time before they can really you know shoot up. But uh, at other times, um, ways of thinking can become so determinative of how a whole society approaches things that they can ossify. You know, one of the really important things about philosophy is that philosophy should 
always challenge our assumptions. We should always be asking ourselves, why do we think that? On what basis do we believe that? What are the reasons that can be advanced in support of that? We always should be, in this very constructive way, skeptical about things. Because if we leave our assumptions unexamined, then we end up really just ourselves ossifying, getting stuck in uh, habits uh, of ways of thinking and seeing which are very bad for us individually and for our societies. So, so ideas find their time when they bring something fresh, when they change the way we see things, when they help us to see things that we didn't see before. What do you think that the future of philosophy holds? Well, philosophy has both uh, a, a set of perennial questions that every generation must ask and answer for itself. And it also has a set of questions where we are trying to make sense of something which is still very puzzling to us. For example, the nature of consciousness, or whether there is something which is uh, settled about human nature, or whether there is an ideal kind of society which, if only we could realize it, would get rid of so many of the conflicts that that trouble us. Um, So if we could find the right kind of answers to those sorts of puzzles, they would cease to be puzzles and our attention would be turned to something else. But you have to remember that every discovery we make, every advance we make, opens up new horizons of inquiry. And so it might be in 50 or 100, 150, 500 years' time that some of the things that philosophers then will be asking themselves questions about will be things that we can't imagine now because we aren't yet ready to imagine them. That was A.C. Grayling. His book, The History of Philosophy, is available now, published by Viking. My interview with Professor Grayling appears in the July issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. For a wealth of more history content, also visit our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Monday when we'll be speaking to Matthew Jenkinson about the men who killed Charles I. 